Amen. Amen. God is good, and as Pastor Carol said, it's so good to be in His presence. <clears throat> There's nothing quite like it. Um, I've <clears throat> been thinking a lot about uh, preparing for this message, been thinking a lot about how uh, things can happen in our lives, <clears throat> in the life of a church uh, that, that are totally out of our control, that we didn't see coming, and that can change everything. And as I was thinking about that and the theme of this text today and this message, I remember the story of, of Kim Phuc. Uh, Kim Phuc was born in a small village in South Vietnam on April 6, 1963. And uh, during, she grew up during the Vietnam War. And, and during this particular phase of her life, bombing raids were very common during this part of the war. And on June 8, 1972, she, she'd been... Uh, huddled uh, safely in a bomb shelter, and, uh, but she and some others had been given permission to play uh, outside of the temple near uh, the, the bomb shelter, and that's when she saw it. Kim remembers running onto the road and, and seeing an airplane heading straight for her, and she recalls, it was so close to us, traveling fast, and it was so loud. As I looked up, I saw four bombs landing. I closed my eyes and heard the bang, and when I opened them again, there was fire everywhere all over my body, and it had burned off my clothes. She says she ran out of the fire and caught up with the others, and they ran on the highway for a little while and, uh, until they were too tired to run anymore. And then when she saw people that she, she felt safe with, she cried out, too hot, too hot. It was then that her picture was taken. This is one of the most iconic images of the Vietnam War. Napalm is a chemical that was used in bombs, and it burns at 2,700 degrees Celsius. That's nearly 30 times hotter than boiling water, and it had melted her skin like wax. She had had burns on 65% of her body, but she'd been saved from the brink of death after three days lying injured and cold in a hospital morgue. Most of the doctors had, had given her up to die. But after 14 months uh, of care, Kim Fook was finally allowed to come home from the hospital. Sometimes we don't see the change coming. And we're, we're in a season uh, that seems... Uh, Around the world, we're in a major season of change, it seems, in many areas of our life. Globally, there's a lot happening uh, close to home, and you get a sense that things are accelerating, both in, in speed and in growing in volume. And, and if we're not careful, we can get sucked into this whirlwind of change by focusing too much on news and on current events. And as followers of Jesus Christ, the best, the best thing that we can do is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who Scripture says is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to focus on His character and remember His promises, His gospel, His mission. And while the world sometimes feels like it's spinning out of control out there, I think we would agree, all of us, that not all change is bad. In fact, many of us are here today in situations where we are desperate for change. We're, we're desperate for transformation. We're desperate for a touch from God. We're desperate for a breakthrough in our situation. And my text today is uh, John 2, 
verses 1 through 11, and we're continuing in our series of Jesus, the miracle worker. In our passage today, we're going to hear about an incredible miracle of transformation, and in the process, John is going to take us deeper into the heart and the character of Jesus. And I think that we've seen this throughout this series, that these, these texts, these, these accounts of Jesus, are there, there's much more going on than the actual miracle itself, and we're going to see that today. And my hope for this message today is that you have a personal encounter with the living Jesus, that this just isn't more uh, of, of collecting information for your databanks uh, about Jesus. And here's why. Because when you truly encounter Jesus, Jesus changes everything. But before we begin, as always, let's set the stage uh, with some context. And one of the unique features of John's gospel is it's organized around these these powerful encounters with uh, different groups of people in, in different situations that reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, and as I just said, John is not just interested in giving us information about Jesus. Uh, and like many of the, of the characters in his gospel, the people in his gospel account, he wants you to encounter Jesus in a life-changing way for yourself. In John's gospel, miracles, they are central to the narrative and to understanding who Jesus is. But John prefers to use the term signs instead of the term miracles. Uh, John sees the, the miracles as encounters that serve not just as, as, just as displays of power, but also as symbols that point beyond the events themselves that give us insight into the true identity and the true glory of Jesus. He says in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In recent years, uh, we've, uh, as a family, been more aware of God's creation in, in, in the nighttime sky. Uh, we, we live in an area now where there aren't a lot of trees, and we, ha- we have a good view of the sky, and we, we've learned a, a little bit about astronomy. Uh, let, let me rephrase that. Becky's learned a little bit about astronomy, <laughs> okay? Uh, we love going outside, and, and to me, each star is beautiful in its own right. I mean, I can just go out and look and just, just marvel at God's creation uh, in the sky. I just love doing that. But Becky, you know, she's been studying, and she's able to see constellations of stars, like Orion and, and Ursa Major. And, and when you see them together, they're even more breathtaking in, in their, their presentation and in, in their design. In, in the beginning of John's Gospel in chapter 1, we get a glimpse into who Jesus is. Uh, in the narrative in chapter 1 alone, John recounts several different titles that apply to Jesus that, that many people in John's original audience would have, would have recognized. Jesus referred to the referred to as the, the Lamb of God. He's referred to as the Son of God. He's referred to as Messiah. He's referred to as King of Israel and the Son of Man. Now, seeing all these titles compressed in a, in a short amount of space is like seeing a constellation of stars. I mean, the, the cumulative effect is very powerful. Now, keeping in mind John's Christocentric focus on the person and the work and the character of Jesus, let's turn to our, to our text today, starting in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, 
Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Oh, so a couple things to note here. First is that weddings were one of the most important celebrations in ancient Jewish culture. Uh, when a wedding was about to happen, what wealthy people might throw a banquet for the whole town. Uh, people of less means would still, and they would invite as many people as they could. And the celebration would actually begin sometimes a year before with the betrothal, with a, with a ceremony where the couple de- declared their love for each other, and, and they began to just prepare themselves, prepare their home for uh, the, the marriage itself. And, and, and when, when the wedding day arrived, it was a, it was a party. It, it was a big deal. Weddings were festive. They were fun with music and dancing and Ideally, weddings would last seven days. People would take off work for, uh, for these celebrations because it was a community event. And weddings were important culturally because they were important to them theologically. Okay, the, the image of marriage as a picture of God's relationship to his people was important in the theological worldview, in the framework, in the Jewish mind. You see this in the, in the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. And it's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament all the way through to Revelation. So weddings were very important celebrations in ancient Israel, and and an important part of that celebration was wine. Now, wine was a very important part of life in Mediterranean culture. In fact, as I read, read up on this, Galilee was actually a large producer of wine in the region. And wine is also seen in the Jewish mind and historically in the Old Testament as a sign of joy, as a sign of God's blessing. So here, to run out of wine at a wedding celebration was was a catastrophe, right? It was a scandal that could ruin a family's reputation for years to come. Some some commentaries, when I dug into this, said that that the, the family could even be legal uh, liable uh, legally for running out of wine and ruining the celebration. So this is a big deal here to run out of wine, right? So here in verse 4, Mary, she, she rightly understands that they have a crisis on their hand. And, and a couple of different interpretations on, on Mary's statement to Jesus that they have no wine fall, fall into a couple of different extremes. The first is that, that Mary was just simply passing on uh, some disappointing information to Jesus about what was happening in this party. She's just a casual observer. Uh, the other extreme is that she was expl- explicitly expecting a miracle. But, but a third option is more likely, and it's more kind of in the middle, and that is that Mary, as a widow, um, for, for her, Jesus had come to become the, the, the main provider in, in the family, right? She'd come to rely on him. We know elsewhere in, in Matthew 13, Jesus is referred to as, as the carpenter's son. Uh, in, in Mark chapter 6, he's actually called the carpenter, okay? So, um, so she's come to rely on him, but the, the word in the original language is better translated as, instead of the carpenter, as the contractor, right? Someone who could not only work with wood, but with stone and, and with metal and, and, and was just skilled in all the construction trades. And this explains the reason why uh, she comes to him with with an assumption. Mary's coming with an assumption that Jesus, in his resourcefulness, he's going to take care of business. He's going to get things done. And here's where we encounter our problem. 
Because when we meet Jesus, Jesus changes our expectations. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, on the surface, this is a strange response from Jesus to his mother. Right? First, he addresses her as woman, which today sounds very rude, <clears throat> condescending. Uh, but in Jesus' context, it's simply a, a, a formal term. Uh, it's just a very formal way of addressing someone. And, and it was very common in Jesus' time. And he uses that term throughout uh, the Gospels on numerous occasions. But Jesus is more than formal here in his response. He, he, he's terse. He, he, he's very short with his mother. There's a, there's a sense, a hint of irritation in his voice. It's like, why are you involving me in this matter? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is very important because the hour, that term, almost always refers to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And one possible reason that Jesus is frustrated is because she doesn't understand what this sign is going to cost him. Jesus knew that when his public ministry began, everything would change and it would set him on the path to Calvary. Now, let's be careful in here not to judge Mary too harshly. How could she know the full picture? Right? As humans on this side of eternity, all of us, all of us see through a glass darkly. We almost never have complete insight into what a decision or a commitment will cost us or those around us. We just can't know everything. Now, there's a couple of important things happening here. First, Jesus is asserting some separation between him and his mother as he begins to publicly embrace his mission and his ministry. And, and it brings to mind the time when Jesus was 12 years old in Luke 2, where, where Jesus had been separated his, for, from his family, and his mother and father come, and they find him in the temple. And Jesus says, he says this as a response. He says that he must be in his father's house. Another translation says that he must be about his father's business. And Jesus understood from a young age that he didn't take on flesh and come to earth as a tourist uh, or to, to get a vacation from, from heaven, right? He came on a rescue mission, and he alone understood what that meant. The second thing that we see going on here is that Jesus is, at the beginning of his ministry, he's de declaring his complete freedom from any human advice, any human agenda, uh, any, any manipulation, right? Jesus is not a people pleaser, Throughout the gospel, Jesus talks about his submission to his Father and that he only does what he sees the Father doing. Just a little bit later in John 5.30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if you've been walking with Jesus for, for any length of time, let's be honest, we know that it's not always easy to be obedient to God's plans and purposes. But when you encounter Jesus for who He truly is, we get a, when we get a revelation of His glory, of who He is, it changes our expectations. Next, it changes our priorities. It changes our priorities. It, one of the best illustrations of this is 
the Netflix series, The Crown. Now, the, the Crown is a series that looks at the life of the current Queen Elizabeth from the time of her marriage into her as she progresses through the years. And it's, it, 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 it's, it's historical fiction. It, it's based on historical events, on real-life uh, events of the royal family and the British government. And it's, it's incredible storytelling. But early in the series, Elizabeth and her husband are visiting Kenya when they receive the news of her father, the king's death. And the scene shows her on uh, the plane, uh, on her way back to England to, to face the situation when she reads a letter sent to her by her grandmother. This would be the king's mother. And this is what it says. It says, Dearest Elizabeth, I know how you love your papa and my son, and we're going to be saddened by, by his loss, but you must put those sentiments aside for, one na- for now for duty calls. Your people will need your strength and leadership. I've seen three great monarchies brought down through their failure to separate personal indulgences from duty. You must not allow yourself to make the same mistakes. And while you mourn your father, you must also mourn someone else, Elizabeth Mountbatten, for she has now been replaced by another person, Elizabeth Regina. The two Elizabeths will always be in conflict with one another, But the fact is, the crown must win. The crown must always win. And one of the ongoing themes of this series is how everyone in the royal family, especially the queen, must submit their desires, their dreams, their personality, in short, everything in their life to the supremacy of the institution of the crown. Excuse me. Now, the scene ends... It, it, with Elizabeth getting ready to deboard her plane, she's changed into her black dress and her morning clothes, and she's about to go out the door, and her husband, Philip, says uh, he'll walk her down the stairs when the private sector, secretary to the sovereign intervenes and says, no, we'll take it from here. The crown takes precedence. precedence. And that's essentially what's happening here in this exchange between Mary and Jesus in verses 3 and 4. It's a reordering of priorities it's, it's really important that, that in all of our teaching and training that we are intentional about the importance of the lordship of Jesus and that our priority, priorities as Christians are shaped accordingly. Here in about <clears throat> 10 days or so, our kids are going to have an amazing time at summer camp. Uh, and they're going to learn in detail about the gospel. And they're going to learn in detail about their need for a Savior. And they're going to hear that really in life there's only two ways to live, my way or God's way, and how to live intentionally in every moment. And they're going to be asking themselves, who is king in this moment? Who is king in this area of my life, right? And the kids are going to have a powerful encounter, but if you're a a parent or a caregiver sending your children, I, I want to encourage you, and I also want to warn you, they're going to come back on fire. And they're going to be asking you, Mom, Dad, who's king in your life? Is it Jesus or is it your phone? Right? Who's king when I want to spend time with you, Mom or Dad? See, we've had an amazing summer of kids in youth ministry here at New Life. There have been life-changing encounters and powerful testimonies, 
But Seth and Judith and Ruth and their teams, they can only do so much in the few hours with the week that they have your kids. See, we can't afford to outsource our children's discipleship. See, discipleship starts in the home. And I don't have to tell you that these are serious times that call for a serious faith. We have a mission given to us by Jesus himself to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded commanded us. And that's the weight of this moment between Mary and Jesus. And Jesus changes our relationships. And this is important. Mary had to learn that she too needed to change. And it's a lesson that we all have to learn, that Jesus is Lord, and we're not. Jesus doesn't serve us. We serve him. Verse 5, Mary says here, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And that's, that's the transformation that we're seeing here in verse 5. Instead of a mother full of expectation, Mary comes to Jesus as a disciple full of trust. By, by saying, do whatever he tells you to do, Mary is demonstrating what it means to submit our agenda to Jesus. It's a statement of submission, but it, it's also more than that. In its own way, it, it's a bold statement of faith. See, she doesn't know exactly what he's going to do, but she has faith that Jesus is going to do something. And we've seen this several times in this series. People who, in spite of pushback and obstacles and not getting the agreeable response at first, they don't quit. Scholar Craig Keener, he calls that holy chutzpah, right? What is chutzpah? If you've never been around a Jewish culture or whatever, chutzpah is kind of this, this attitude that um, there's nothing going to stop me from getting uh, whatever I want. One of, the, one of the jobs that I had when I was living in New York, um, uh, tr- trying, to, trying to become famous, which obviously didn't work out, uh, <laughs> is... Uh, is I worked as in sales in an in a interior construction firm, an in, you know, office interiors firm. And there, were, there, there was this guy, a uh, young guy, probably, probably in his 30s at the time. His name was Charlie Lowenstein. And this guy had chutzpah. I mean, he uh, had confidence, and he, he was just always pushing the envelope about getting resources, and, 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 but he was getting leads, and he was getting stuff done. And, and he, he, I learned from him this phrase. He says, he says you don't, if you don't ask, you don't get. Right? And we see this throughout this series. Right? We see the, the woman with the issue of blood. We see it in the Syrophoenician woman. We saw it uh, just a few weeks ago with blind Bartimaeus. And what they all have in common is a, is a, is a desperation that leads to a fearless faith. They're, they're fearless of the consequences, fearless of, of what people are going to think about them and tradition. And this has been a theme throughout this series that Jesus responds to faith. And that's what we see here in the next passage, John 2, verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, war, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, 
and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, throughout his ministry, is constantly engaging with the law and the religious institution and, and, and rituals. And, and the first thing that I want you to see in this passage is that when you encounter Jesus, he changes our theology, right? Specifically, how we understand and relate to God. Now, John notes here that there are six stone jars present for the purpose of water purification rites. Now, purification related to the call to holiness outlined in the book of Leviticus, right, where you see very specific instructions from God to the Israelites on how to live out the call to live uh, holy in the details of everyday life. Now, one scholar noted that reading the statement a few verses ago, they have no wine in verse 3 in this context, it it provides a a, a deeper meaning than a panicked wedding host, right? it's It's a theological statement about Judaism, that the, the old order has passed away and that the new age of the Messiah and his kingdom has come. And here we have the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures where the prophets describe the messianic age as a time when new wine would flow liberally. And I don't have time to read these, but you see this in Jeremiah 31, Hosea 14, uh, Joel 3, Amos 9. All those passages talk about the, the, the future age of the Messiah and the fullness of wine in that time. And here in verse 7, by taking the empty stone jars that were meant for purification and filling them to the brim, Jesus is demonstrating the theological reality that we are now purified by his own blood, right? Which is symbolized in the, by the, the new wine of the kingdom and the messianic feast. And we see this later tangibly expressed in the Last Supper, Matthew 26, 27. Last Supper, Jesus says he took the cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink all of it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Right, and this picture of the feast will be ultimately consummated in the marriage supper of the Lamb we see in Revelation 19. And here's the point that John is making. Purification no longer comes by external washing, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? So many scriptures, so little time. I'm just going to give you a few of them. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we, ha- we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways and inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. And this is amazing good news. Becoming spiritually clean has changed from religious rites and rituals to a personal relationship with God himself and the person of Jesus Christ. See, it's no longer about external performance and behavior. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, it's not about what we do. It's about receiving as a free gift what Jesus has already done. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we deserve on the cross for our sins, but he rose victorious over death, over sin, over the grave, so that we could live forever with him. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. And Jesus, we see here, he changes our theology. Next, Jesus changes the physical world, right? In his famous speech opening the free university in 1880, Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. And here we see another example of the power of Jesus. In, in the healing accounts that we've covered in this series, we see that Jesus is performing creative miracles that technically work on the microcellular level, right? He's causing nerve endings to, to reconnect. He's causing skin cells to regenerate. And we've seen Jesus demonstrate his power and control over natural weather systems and the calming of the storm. And here is another demonstration of the power of Jesus. Now, the text doesn't say exactly how he did it, but Jesus supernaturally changes the molecular structure of water into wine. And here, in this miracle, we see more of Jesus' character revealed. First, we see the extravagance of Jesus, right? The extravagance of Jesus. The text says that there were six water jars holding up to 30 gallons, which converted equals about 900 bottles of wine. Now, by giving us these details, the number of jars, how large they were, how, how Jesus filled them to the brim, John is making a point about the lavish generosity uh, of Jesus, right? But, but there's more. Verse 9, the master of the feast, when he, 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 he tasted the water that had become wine, right, he, he, he noted that 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 usually the best wine is served first, but that, that, that he had served the very best. He'd saved the very best for last, right? And Jesus not only overwhelms the party with the quantity of wine, but with the quality of wine, right? And here, Jesus is making a statement. It's a foretaste and a preview of what's to come, saving the best for last, the consummation of the kingdom in the new heaven in the new earth. And we see the, the extravagance of Jesus. Earlier before service, I was here j just for a few minutes catching the, the tail end of the, the, the worship team uh, preparing for 
uh, worship today, and it was just that the presence of God was here, and, and Mavis was just exhorting the team that, that Jesus, uh, it, there's abundance with Jesus. There's fullness with Jesus, right? And, and, and that's, that's, Jesus is actually going to say this later in John, that Jesus is going to say, I've come that you would have life and have it abundantly, the richness, the quality, the, the, the overflow of life is what Jesus is all about. So we see the extravagance of Jesus. We also see Jesus' character displayed in the kindness, the kindness of Jesus. Now, notice here that Jesus doesn't uncover the bridegroom's failure. Right? He, he, he doesn't come uh, and make the, make the bridegroom grovel. Instead, Jesus protects the family's honor quietly. And instead of being the talk of the town for running out of wine, they're going to be the talk of the town for this lavish generosity. And that's how Jesus is, right? He, he takes our failures and He turns them around to work for our good. And instead of us being shamed and uncovered, He gives us a double portion of His honor, right? So we see the kindness of Jesus here, finally, in verse 11, we see that Jesus changes people. <clears throat> verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, the, the sign of changing water to wine is more than just a display of power. It's a sign that points to the reality of who Jesus is and what it's like to live in his kingdom. And, and here, John is making explicit in real life what he said about Jesus in the prologue, the glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth, the glory, the, the, the Word become flesh has come to dwell among us. And here in, in the miracle in Cana, the, the cumulative effect of encountering Jesus' his power, his, his his extravagance, his, his kindness, his commitment to mission is to see his glory, his beauty, his supreme worth for who he is, Son of God, Messiah, King of kings, and Lord of lords. See, many of us are hungry to see the, the supernatural and for God to do more, more miracles in the world. And, and I'm one of them. I want to see that but it's possible to see the miracle and miss the glory. But we, when we see His glory, if we encounter Him for who He truly is, we will trust Jesus with our whole life, and that's when we're changed for eternity. I'll close today with a story that I began with. After Kim Fook had returned from the hospital, she put all of her focus on becoming... A, a doctor because of how they had taken care of her. She was really moved by that. But she was not only in incredible physical pain, but she was uh, really hurting and in pain on the inside. And she, she studied, she threw herself into her studies, uh, but she wasn't able to fulfill her dream uh, because the government closed her school and the government actually used her uh, for government propaganda. And she said, this is what she said, that was the lowest point in my life in 1982. I just wanted to die. I thought after I was dead, I wouldn't have to suffer anymore. 
But I really wanted to find the truth, the answer, my purpose. I was seeking God, and I said, God, are you, are you real? If you are real, please help me. I need you. And one day she was in Saigon in the library, and she came across a copy of the New Testament. And she read John 14, 6, and says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And it gripped her. Something gripped her in that moment. And she was invited to church by a relative. And on Christmas in 1982, she heard the gospel in its fullness and gave her life to Jesus. And this is what she said. She said, I believe that God had a plan for me. He looked down and said, I'm not finished with that little girl. I have a plan for you. All that I went through, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual pain, means that I can understand those who face pain. Many, many years later, she traveled to a burn unit in Uganda, and it's a hospital that's actually built by her foundation. And it's the first time that she'd been in a burn unit since her own experience over 20 years prior. This is what she said. It was a big sacrifice. It brought me back to the burn unit I was in. It was very scary, very painful. And during the emotional visit, she was taken to meet a, another woman whose husband had thrown acid on her face. And the nurse said, Kim, she doesn't want to eat anymore. She doesn't even want to live. <clears throat> and Kim Fook said, I got close to her and I talked to her and I showed her my scars. Now, at first, she said the lady didn't want to hear about it. She said, Kim, you talk about forgiveness. How can I forgive my husband who did this to me? She recalls, I hate him. How can I learn to forgive? She said, I had the same question for a long, long time but I know through experience that God loves me for who I am, not for how I look. I trusted God to bring the right people into my life, and He did. And Kim prayed for her. Soon after, she got a message from the nurse saying that after she had left, that the woman had stood up and walked through the hall and was talking to people and began to eat and drink, and that she had given her hope. And this is what Kim says. She goes, nearly half a century has passed since I found myself running frightened, naked, and in pain down that road in Vietnam. I will never forget the horrors of that day, the bombs, the fire, the shrieks, the fear, nor will I forget the years of trial and torment. But when I think about how far I've come, the freedom and that peace that comes from faith in Jesus, I realize there's nothing greater or more powerful than the love of our blessed Savior. My faith in Jesus has enabled me to forgive those who hurt me, and scarred me. It has enabled me to pray for my enemies rather than curse them. And it has enabled me to not just tolerate them, but to truly love them. I will forever bear the scars of that day, and that picture will always serve as a reminder of the unspeakable evil of what humanity is capable. That picture defined my life. In the end, it gave me a mission, a ministry, and a cause. Today, I thank God for that picture. Today, I thank God for everything, even for that road, especially for that road. See, Jesus can take a young girl, bombed by napalm, left for dead with no hope, and He can save her, and He can heal her and use her as a vehicle for hope and healing for victims of trauma. And He can do the same for you. Because when you encounter Jesus, He changes everything. Let's pray.